The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right. We are in Revelation 21, and I would like us to just open up our time together by reading a few verses. Revelation 21 and the first four verses. Who has that and can read verses 1 through 4 of Revelation 21? All right. Somebody else, can you read verses 9 um, nine through 14 of chapter 21? Okay, and then somebody... Read the verse, uh, first five verses of chapter 22. All right. Well, uh, the title for this evening <clears throat> is Creation Regained, A Theology of God's Dwelling with His People and How It Informs Our Current Mission and Future Hope. I'm a man of few words. The, this is going to be a little bit different than some of the uh, recent core trainings. We're, we're wanting to do a mix of core trainings, the idea being that each one focuses on a different core, core value, right? So truth, uh, love, service, community, mission. So something that's going to be focused on one or more of those. And so we've done some practical things this year um, and some theological ones. We started off the year with, uh, you know, the point of biblical history that Stacy did. Um, and so this is another one where we're going to take some time to look at Scripture tonight, to dig into a specific theme. Um, and I, I'm a total, total nerd when it comes to this. I, I know everybody has their hobbies and things they like, but when it comes to biblical theology and tracing themes in Scripture and just seeing how redemptive history starts to open and widen and, and play itself out, I, I just, I like it. I'm a total nerd when it comes to that. And so I hope I can bring you into my nerddom a little bit tonight, and that, uh, that this isn't just an exercise in looking at a bunch of stuff that maybe seems uh, hopefully interesting and cool to be able to see it in Scripture, but that we realize that because of these foundational theological truths, that we walk out of here understanding like there are practical, very practical ramifications to this, all right? And I... I not even to say that like you have to have practical ramifications and everything, right? We, we kind of uh, want that sometimes. We are, we're very pragmatic people. So we, you know, we sometimes say, well, it didn't really do anything for me for walking out the door this evening. It was too deep or whatever. I hope this is a little of both. I hope we get um, into some more in-depth stuff and, and see some really interesting things in what God is doing and how he's uh, shown it to us through his word. But that it, that it is very... Uh, practical at the end of the day for us as well. Um, we'll get to why we read this in just a minute. I thought it would be just appropriate for me to show you the results of the questions last week. Those of you who were here that last week, there were um, some random questions that were in the bulletin. Uh, that was as much a publicity stunt on my part as it was anything else. <laughs> Maybe to pique some interest and say, oh, I wonder what they're going to be doing next week. Um, but it plays out, each of these questions play out in different ways as we go through the evening. Just random, very uh, kind of surface level questions. But uh, the first question about uh, what items are seen both in the beginning, in Eden, and in the end, in the New Jerusalem we just read of. Uh, most people got it right, a river 
a tree, among other things uh, we see there. Um, Adam could be described as the first priest, farmer, butcher, mayor, or all four. We had some people that were just like, all of them. I'm going to pick all of them. Uh, So we had a few of those. Um, We'll talk more about this and why I asked it in a few minutes. Um, God's presence currently being manifested through his spirit working in and through his people. Um, Again, that was hopefully an underhand slow pitch. Um, And then what is our promised eternity described as? So there were... um, Again, some mixed thoughts on that, and some that just said, I like the sound of all of them. And uh, cop-outs, all of them, cop-outs. All of them. All right, so that's it. That's, I just wanted to show you that for the sake of showing it to you. Um, <clears throat> so we're in Revelation 21 and 22. All right, we know these, we know these passages pretty well, right? At some point, we've, we've read them. Um, if we grew up in church, we probably read them uh, in a study circle in our youth group as we're trying to figure out what in the world Revelation's saying, um, or what have you. And so uh, end times, of course, have been popular for all of time, but it seems like in the past quarter century, um, especially as uh, we see things and people are so easily wanting to say, like, what's happening in the world today? Where can I find the answer to it in Scripture so I can know what's happening? It's become... Uh, very popular that way as well. But as we read these chapters, and even the verses there that were in between the the further description of this new Jerusalem, we see something that we might miss at first glance, but I think um, it should cause us pause to ask a question, and so I'm going to use it as the basic question this evening to say, why is this the case? And then to answer it, we're going to go and do our biblical theological piece, okay? Here's the question. Why does John start to describe the new heaven and the new earth? So we've got this new creation uh, coming into play. He sees it, and then rather than what we think he's doing in describing the new heaven and new earth, he starts to talk about a piece of it. He starts to talk about what specifically in the verses that we read. What do you remember? the new Jerusalem, right? He starts to talk about this new Jerusalem, this city. He starts to go pretty in depth, right, into what he's describing, what he's seeing. He's giving pretty clear descriptions of it. So the question is, why does John, even in the whole thrust of the book of Revelation, come to this point and say, finally, I see it, the new heavens and the new earth, and then just starts to describe this one little thing, this this new Jerusalem peace. Why not like continue to talk about all the other aspects of what we would assume would be part of the new heaven and earth? You know, he's just speaking to that one, that one little piece. Um, so we have to wonder why that is. And it's also interesting to see what some of the description uh, lays out, right? Uh, he's talking about some things that might seem familiar to us. One of the questions, again, was what do we see in common between the beginning and the end? So we see this idea of a river. We see these aspects of um, precious stones, of this foundation. So we see some similarities with some things that we've maybe seen before as well. So we're asking the question, why is that the case? 
um, that he seems to just move from new heaven and new earth to then one specific aspect of it. And then why does he describe it the way he describes it, right? Um, you read it and it sounds maybe a little bit like uh, a mix between, I got a couple pictures here, a mix between the, the never-ending story and a Thomas Kincaid painting, right? Like, let's, let's merge those two a little bit and we've got something that's going, how many of you watched Never Ending Story in the 80s? All right, okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, but I, you know, I read this and I picture that, like this, the glassy sea and the shiny city. And, um, you know, that's just for a laugh. Uh, so, so why is he doing this? And is he really even trying to make the point of, I'm seeing this thing and it's this one-for-one, one, you know, correspondence of reality to what is actually what is actually going to be the case? Or is he using uh, descriptions and imagery and certain things that we see throughout redemptive history as, as touch points to help us understand not just this visual like, oh, that's what, it'll gonna, what it's going to look like, but he's doing much more than that, that he's actually filling out what it is and how it serves its purpose and all these things. These are some questions we're going to ask and, and answer, I hope, in... Uh, in the course of our next little while together. So I'm going to give just the simple answer to, to that question, to the first part of that question, and then uh, hopefully we'll see why that is the case and how amazing uh, of a truth it is. So I'm going to say that John is basically laying the framework in verse 1 of chapter 21. He's seeing a new heaven and new earth. In, in verse 2, he starts to describe what he is seeing as the new heaven and earth. And then 3 and following, he starts to really dig into saying, this is the new heaven and earth. So I am basically saying this, the new Jerusalem and the city he is describing is the totality of the new heaven and earth. It is one and the same. He's not just like, you know, pulling out a piece of the map or seeing one city on the map of new creation. He is seeing new creation in this new Jerusalem, this city. Um, and it is the culmination of this new creation. It's interesting to see right off the bat some similarities with other things. Um, it's temple-like. It sounds a little temple-like uh, as he mentions uh, some things through there. And we'll touch on that in a little bit. It's kind of garden-like too, right? We see a river. We see a garden. We see certain aspects here um, that are part of, part, kind of garden-like. Um, in a lot of ways, those descriptions that Chris read and then the verses following that, the last part of chapter 21, uh, they echo a lot of what we see in Ezekiel. There's a passage in Ezekiel, like eight chapters, 40 through 48, that describes this future end times temple where God is saying this covenant that he's made with Israel, all this stuff that's happening with Israel, it will be met and fulfilled one day in the end. And so it's describing this, like, this ultimate temple picture that they're looking for you know, in their, in their sphere of, of worship. Um, there's a lot of echoes to that in these descriptions um, of the foundations, the precious stones. Uh, a prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54, uh, talks about the fact, uh, again, that, these, that he lays the foundations um, and that it's covered with precious stones. Um, again, that's a prophecy there in Isaiah of, of God renewing his covenant and that it be, it's an everlasting covenant of peace. Um, and joy to his people and describes it as some of these same kind of things. So we start to see right away, even just in some big passages, that there, there are 
pictures and descriptions that are woven together, and it's not just that we have this one snapshot um, of John saying, oh, I see this city, and it's just this amazing thing, and it has nothing to do with anything else that's come before it. It is the culmination of much that has come before, and so that's what we're going to look at tonight. And so we're going to do it this way. Um, I told you that, and I've been, you know, it's been in the bulletin leading up uh, to tonight, that this is a, a theology of the dwelling place of God. So we're going to start answering this question of why does John describe it this way? Why is it this way? What is this imagery for? We're going to start answering that question with tackling the subject of God dwelling with his people. And so when you think of God dwelling with his people and maybe some of the high points in redemptive history through scripture of how he does that, what's usually the first thing that comes to your mind? Okay, Eden comes to Matthew's mind. Anything else pops up in people's heads about God dwelling with his people? Tabernacle, the temple, right? And so we have these ideas. We probably think of Jesus, right? Because we're supposed to think that. Um, So we have these high points in redemptive history that we're going to say like, oh yeah, dwelling place of God, God being with his people, him being in a sanctuary uh, with his people. These are things that are going to be there. And probably the temple comes to light the most because that's, you know, such a crucial aspect of the Old Testament. So we are going to look at that, but we're going to realize that um, it doesn't start with the temple. It starts long before that, uh, and it starts in Eden. And Eden sets the stage for everything to come um, it then is culminated here at the end of time, and uh, we see this beautiful play of this unfolding plan of God in the midst. So we're going to do that. All right. So let's start digging in. Just to um, hone in a couple things I said there a minute ago, uh, that passage in Isaiah 54, again, is speaking, God speaking to his people, Israel, um, but listen to the imagery he uses. Uh, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, which I guess is a precious stone, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. He's using this imagery of something physical, of a building of this temple-like thing, because it's tied into with God being with his people again in his presence. So, um, you, see, you see that all through, the, especially the prophetic writings, this constant return to an understanding of what God will finally do for his people in the end related to God dwelling with his people and, and in these temple terms. Because again, we'll, we'll talk about this in a little bit. This is, this is God, God is in scripture talking to his people, revealing himself in ways people can understand, right? And so he's going to do it in a time and place and context that people are in at any given time too. So that's why we talk about progressive revelation and unfolding as, as time goes on. So as he describes what he's going to do with his people, of course, he's going to use imagery of what people can already understand in their relationship with God. Um, and we could even take it a step forward and say that the very imagery he's using to relate himself Um, This idea of temple and things were created in the first place uh, to do just that, that these structures themselves speak to what God is doing and will do. So you have that. Another interesting thing is that he describes uh, the the size of the city, right? And, And this is something I know as I've been in different places and this has been talked about in Bible studies and whatnot, you know, it's 
it's like looking at, well, it's 144 cubits, length, width, and height. So it's this cubic city floating there above something. And, you know, so it's like we're, we're immediately wanting to just picture this in our minds. And so we're picturing this weird cubical city floating above some new creation. And I, I don't think that's necessarily John's purpose. Uh, what's interesting is that Solomon's temple in the Holy of Holies it's also described as something that's equal in length, breadth, and width. It's the same dimension, um, not like 144 cubits, but it's, it's cubical in shape. The Holy of Holies is cubical in shape. It's also overlaid in gold, so the whole thing is, is shining like gold. So if you were listening while people were reading earlier on, you're seeing some of this stuff, right? Um, so again, I think it is saying much more than just us trying to get a snapshot picture of what's the city going to be like? And you're like... God went to heaven to prepare a place for us. That's what, that's what it's going to look like. It's, he's doing something a little bit more than just that, I think. Okay, so we're going to play that out a little bit. <clears throat> All right, so the first thing we're going to do, um, as Matt said earlier on, as we think about God dwelling with his people, we're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to talk about Eden. And we're not just going to talk about Eden on a simple level of saying, well, yeah, God was with Adam. Adam and Eve were with God in the garden. We're actually going to go a little bit further than that and say that the Garden of Eden itself was the first temple sanctuary, that it was structured in such a way that it, in its very makeup and nature, said something about God's plan, that it was going to begin this picture, this conversation of what God was going to do. All right, so just so you know, um, with my notes, sometimes I'm going to try and flow kind of like telling a story with certain things. And sometimes I'm just going to just give you points, like think about this or, you know, just list some bullet points for you. Okay. So we're going to have a little bit of mix of that tonight. Um, so let me start um, with just a few bullet points that I have here under this, under this heading. And the slides there are not going to go into detail that I have here they're basically place markers for us um, on the stage of redemptive history that we're in, um, so you can kind of not lose track. All right, so basic things that we know and understand about Eden. Um, so Eden was the place where Adam walked and talked with God, okay? Foundational, right? We understand that. So he's having fellowship with God. Uh, in the same way as we link the Garden of Eden to the temple as we continue this flow, we know that in the same way the priests uh, had fellowship with God. They walked and talked with him in certain ways and certain um, regulatory ways that were given to them to fellowship with their God and, and act as priests, right? Um, keep the idea of priests in your mind. We will be hitting on that quite a bit too. So Eden was the place where Adam walked and talked with God. Uh, some interesting word pictures here that the writer of Genesis likes to, to give to us. When we read in the garden that what, how did God um, uh, show himself in the garden to Adam and Eve? Remember, it says that God would come and he would do what with Adam in the garden as he fellowship with him? He would walk and talk with him, right? This idea of walking and talking um, with God in the garden. That same phrase, those same words 
are used when you talk about God's presence in the tabernacle and priests interacting with God in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, that God would walk and talk with them. Um, kind of the same idea as God's um, presence would be showed in the cloud and the pillar of fire as God was with his people, that he would walk back and forth with them in fellowship with them. Um, some interesting things, again, about the Garden of Eden and the temple, as the temple was instituted later on in the life of Israel. We have the tree of life. That's of prime importance, right, in, in the creation narrative and in the fall um, and really the unfolding of um, this redemptive history. Uh, but as you look at some of the furniture that was in the temple, you see some similarities with the Garden of Eden. So uh, remember the lampstands that were part of the furniture in the temple? Well, when you start to read the descriptions of these lampstands, um, they weren't like Jewish menorahs, right? Like they just weren't like a nice little lampstand with seven, seven posts. But as you read um, some of the descriptions in Scripture and the, the directives of building things, and then you read some extra biblical literature about how these temples were built. Um, Josephus even says a lot about um, like Solomon's temple and the second temple that was built after the exile and describes what these things looked like. It's pretty amazing. The lampstands in the temple actually had like a trunk, a central trunk, and had branches, so to speak, that came off of the trunk. Um, and the lights were mounted on top, these big candles that were on top of these things. But it wasn't like the symmetrical lampstand. It, it looked like a tree. And so you had all these trees as you walked into the holy place, these lampstands that essentially looked like trees with lights glowing on the top of them. So you walk into this dark area and you have the idea, this imagery of this tree. You also have the, the heavenlies that are um, there, of course, with all these lights on top of the lampstands. Um, some interesting things as you walk through that. Um, another similarity that you see with these structures that God sets up that was similar uh, to what we have in the garden. Where did the entrance, what direction did the entrance of the garden face? Remember what it's, remember what it was? East, okay. Right, so the entrance to the garden was in the east. I mean, again, we'd be, we're in, we're in like Genesis 1 through 3 right now. We will be going to specific passages and talking about them. Don't worry, I'm not trying to like pull the wool over your eyes and, your eyes and like deceive you and tell you stuff that's not there. Um, but you can go and, and dig into these things. So the garden entrance faced east. Uh, and uh, the same idea is with um, the temples that were built. And in the Ezekiel description of the temple that I mentioned, uh, chapters 40 through 48 in Ezekiel, same idea as they entered the entrance of them was always to be uh, facing east. And they were always on a mountain. Right? So it's the idea that these things need to be set, set up high. There's always this theme of mountaintop with the entrance facing, facing the east. A river flowed from Eden. We see that in uh, the temples. We see that in the description, again, of the end times temple in Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12, gives some descriptives of where this temple is and that it's going to have a river flowing in it. Of course, we just saw that in Revelation 22. Um, that this end time sanctuary temple city thing, uh, this new creation has a river flowing through it. Um, and we know that the temples of the past, Israel's temples on the mountain had um, actual rivers and trenches and canals dug in them to picture this idea of the river flowing through a temple and then it would 
and empty out the back of the temple down the side of the mountain. All right. Um, additionally, uh, we see descriptions of the temple. We see descriptions of God dwelling with his people all through the Old Testament that liken it to Eden itself. Um, so as it talks about God being with his people or it talks about um, Mount Zion or any of these things as you work through, as you work through prophetic books, it's always talking um, or it's oftentimes using terms about, again, what the Garden of Eden, what the Garden of Eden was like. Um, speaking to this idea, again, of things being fulfilled and restored in the end to look um, much like they were originally intended to be in the original creation. This is interesting. If you look at Genesis 2, uh, verse 10, this is not like a hard and fast uh, boom, there you've got proof kind of thing. Uh, but it's interesting that uh, you start to potentially see that this idea of the temple having the outer courts, the holy place, and the holy of holies is not just something that is, you know, hey, this is how I want the temple to look uh, for Israel. It's not just, you know, the best architectural design, but the temple is, again, a reflection of what Eden was. So Genesis 2.10 makes this kind of a passing comment in describing what Eden was like. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So we potentially have here the writer mentioning that you have Eden, and Eden elsewhere is talked about being on a mountaintop as well. There would be a mountain there. And so you have Eden, water flowing out of Eden, to water the garden. Now, of course, we most of the times think of Eden, garden. It's, it's like all one and the same thing, and it, and it is. But there is this, along with some other ways of describing it later on in the prophets, that seem to indicate almost that there was this understanding of segments in the original creation, so that Eden was where God dwelled. So this actual part of the garden that's Eden, this mountaintop spot where the river is coming from, is, is God's heavenly, uh, or God's existence. That's where he is based, so to speak. And then his presence goes out into the garden. The garden is kind of like um, the holy place. The garden, or then Eden is like the holy of holies. Um, and then, of course, we know that what else is there in the new creation? We know that after the fall, where are Adam and Eve sent? out of Eden, right? So they're sent out of Eden, they're sent out of the garden into something else that God didn't say, oh, man, I got to create more now because they can't be in the garden anymore. There was already something there. It was already the rest of creation. It wasn't the garden yet, though. So where we have like almost a third aspect of the creation, the creation that you could say is this, uh, what God called very good in Genesis 1, that you have the understanding that there, there's all of it, it's all good, but then in the midst of this very good, you have the garden, and in this garden, God places man and woman. And then in that garden, a part of the garden, there is Eden, which is where God is dwelling and uh, ruling and reigning, and then fellowshipping with, with man and woman in that garden. It's interesting then that there is such... Um, 
intentionality in the building of the temple later on to reflect these same three stages or spheres in the way that God dwells with his people and is present on earth. Um, And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So you have a lot of indicators. I'm having to just choose what I want to talk about in each of these so that we are officially done at 7.05 and we do get to apply all this. Um, But you have a lot of indicators that this isn't just some like, oh, well, we've got a creation and then it all starts to, you know, turn into this cultic practice with Israel and later on in the temple and all that. No, it's like from the get-go, God has distinct plans in his design and his description of what the garden is that we start to see. And it tells us the story of what he is doing and wanting to do with his people. All right, so we see that, and we, we now bring um, what I've just talked about in with just who Adam is and what Adam is to do. Okay, so let's talk about Adam um, and his call for a minute. I'm going to say uh, that Adam is essentially the first priest. Okay, so yeah, he's the first farmer. The question that was up there earlier, yeah, he farmed. Great, that's, that's all well and good too. I guess you could say he was the first butcher as well and the first mayor. Maybe the people that answered all four were right. Um, but, but as we start to see these threads woven into history, we're going to see that Adam was just more than the guy that's like, hey, could you name some animals? Could you take care of some things? Could you do this? The, the commissions that he, are, he, that he is given um, are very distinct, and they speak to him being a, a priest, a king, all of these things uh, that just sets the stage for this beautiful story to unfold. So let's speak to that. A couple bullet points that we have then for Adam being commissioned as the first priest king um, in, in history. Uh, and it's taking place in the first sanctuary temple in history. We know the commissioning words that God gives Adam. He is called to do certain things. And in Genesis 2.15, the Lord takes the man, puts him in the Garden of Eden, to work and to keep it. So my ESV uses work and keep. Different translations are going to use different things. Um, Cultivate and keep is a modern translation or a common translation as well. Many times those can be translated, um, and you might even see it in your, if you have a different translation um, in your Genesis passage, that it says he is called to serve and to guard. Does anybody have serve and guard if they have a different translation? No? All right, just totally believe me. Trust me. Um, But not only are you going to see that, but again, as you continue on through the story, through history, and we're in the temple period with priests serving, priests are often given the same commission and the same two words that we have here translated work and keep or cultivate and keep are used of priests to serve and to guard. And essentially they're being called uh, to serve in the temple as as mediators, right, between God and, and the rest of mankind and to guard it. What are they essentially guarding the temple from? The temple is the dwelling place of God. It's holy, it's sanctified, set apart. Okay, so part of their commission as a priest was to guard from uncleanliness or unholiness. Remember, I mean, if you've read Leviticus or Deuteronomy, remember all these purification rites of the temple and then even other aspects of the life of Israel 
um, where, you know, just various things can make them unclean. And when they're unclean, they have to go offer certain sacrifices to get clean. And they can only stay in the outer courts of the temple, right? If you're unclean, you can come into these outer courts, these common areas where Gentiles and stuff were allowed to go to. But until you have done certain things to be made clean again, you can't even enter into the holy place, the, the middle section of, of the temple. And of course, only priests themselves, the high priest could go into the holy of holies once a year um, to be present um, in God's dwelling with his people at that point in time. So they are called to, to uh, serve, keep, uh, and guard from unclean things. Think about that in uh, Adam's commission. So he's called to uh, work, to cultivate, to serve. So he is acting um, in a priest-like manner and just taking care of the garden. He's acting as a mediator in some respects, even um, we see in some ways with, with his wife, Eve, uh, and God. And so he's serving in that way. But even more, when you think about the fact that he's called to guard the garden from unclean things, how did Adam lose his commission as priest? The fall, right? So he's disobeying. He has, you know, we, all these things that we talk about a lot in that he, like, he believes a lie. He's deceived. He chooses to rebel, all these things. But think about it in this light. Does the serpent have the right to be in the garden? No, right? Especially if we're understanding the garden as like this middle area of like the sanctuary idea. Um, you know, maybe this serpent, you know, should be out in the rest of creation, uh, maybe in like the outer courts kind of thing, but he has come into the garden and Adam really in keeping his commission should have kicked that serpent out of the garden to keep the garden holy, right? We oftentimes think in these like very, like the sin and fall and legal type things, which is all well and good and true. But we think about these pictures and these images of things. Adam was called to keep and guard the garden, and he didn't. Rather than kicking the serpent out, kicking Satan out of a place he shouldn't have been, he, he lets him stay, and then he lets him defile. And then um, it causes sin. And so he's sent, he's sent out. And then Instead of him guarding, who comes and guards the garden? The, the archangels, right? So God sets the angels at the entrance to the garden, and they are called to guard. I think that's um, Genesis 3, right at the end. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim in a flaming sword. They turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they are now functioning as these... Uh, um, substitute priests <laughs> kind of thing, doing what Adam should have done and failed to do. The, even the imagery of the cherubim, these archangels standing guard and being, uh, having that function, you see that play out in the story too, right? We see the temple and otherwise like the cherubim show up in these images and in the furniture and they're over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies doing these things. So we have these, these imageries as well. Adam's call to be fruitful and to multiply is ultimately a call to take part in making all of creation be a place where God fellowships with his people. He fails. Adam loses the priestly function in God's sanctuary. So here's the point to the fact that we're seeing Eden as a garden or seeing Eden as a temple 
um, and we're seeing Adam as a priest. We're seeing this, this structure of holy of holies, holy place of the garden, and these outer courts, the rest of creation. We're seeing Adam's commission to keep and guard and cultivate and work, to be fruitful and to multiply. You're starting to see the point of all this and what Adam is called to do as somebody made in the image of God, somebody who is an ambassador for God in this creation. What was supposed to happen? Let's just say Adam did his duty as priest. The serpent comes in, he kicks the serpent out, it's done. What, what then plays out? What's the intent of all this, do you think? Is he supposed to keep the garden in the sense that like a gardener does today at like, you know, some mansion has really nice gardens and he's keeping the garden, just like maintaining? Is that what Adam was called to do? Maintain the garden? Yes, no, slow pitch underhand, hit it. Yes or no? No, okay. So he said no, now I want, now I want the harder answer. What was he supposed to do? if he wasn't called to be like this maintenance type gardener. Cultivate it, and then cultivating it entails what? Hmm? Filling it, yep. Okay, expanding, right. So filling, expanding, cultivating, growing. So this garden that is this Eden as part of God's overall creation is not supposed to just stay as a tiny little part of God's creation. And it's like, oh, this is good stuff. I've got my own little corner of paradise here. God's up on the mountain behind me. The river's flowing through. This is great. And then I don't know what's out there. Maybe our great, great, you know, grandchildren will explore it. There was supposed to be an investment in taking this garden where God reigns and fellowships with his creation and expand it over the whole earth. So it's not just like, hey, go have babies so you can just have big families. It's all tied into this idea of God's dwelling with his creation. He's interacting on a personal level with what he created. It's not this deistic idea of God creates just because he wants to and see what happens, or he has to because he needs something. He does it for a purpose, and he's interacting and, and wanting to be with his people. And so we're seeing this even at the beginning, that their intention, or that God's intention with his creation and with um, man and woman is to see his presence go out through all of creation so that he can be worshiped, he can be uh, king over all of creation, that his presence fills the entire cosmos. We just talked about why that never took place in Genesis, why Genesis uh, starts to unfold in a much different way. And yet we see the same type of thread, same type of aspects of a story continue to play themselves out even though sin has now come in and caused distortion in everything. So we move quickly. I'm just going to touch for a minute on the patriarchs um, and how they in some way and in incomplete ways continue or even just start but then fail these same types of things. So Noah comes, there's a flood and really the flood, we talked about this with Stacy in Genesis, is really God recreating he judges and recreates, and the cycle starts again. And so Adam, or so Noah comes out in this new creation, and he is called to be this progenitor or this first person, this first family in a new creation. And he's called to do essentially the same types of things that Adam is called to do. 
Um, it's interesting that as you see Noah and his family right after uh, they're out of the ark, what do they start to do? What's the first thing Noah does? Before, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, it's not too long before he's drunk, right? But the first thing he does is he sets up an altar, right? And we see this Noah covenant, we see the rainbow and all these things playing out there. But the first thing that is established is some kind of physical connection, this picture of man and God fellowshipping. It's the first thing he does, and he's setting himself up. It's kind of this like king picture, this priest picture. Even the idea of him then planting. He's planting a vineyard. He has a vineyard. This garden idea is starting to play out. That's interesting. And of course, again, his failure and his sin happens in the garden, happens in the vineyard, and is a fruit of that. No pun intended. Um, and so we see Noah. It's kind of like these like false starts or bulk pitches, like, ah, oh, ah, oh, like all these, these things happening over and over again. So we have Noah. We have Abraham. We have uh, Abraham's um, descendants, uh, Isaac, Jacob, moving to Israel. And every time we see these things happening and we read these stories of what God is doing is uh, he, he's calling them out and he calls them out to himself. He calls them to something. And it's interesting, some of the um, parallels with all of these ways in which God works with these patriarchs leading to his people Israel. Um, some of the commonalities in how he interacts and some of the things we see in the text um, we see um, many of them go and, and pitch tents or tabernacles on a mountain. Um, we see them building altars. We see them doing things a lot of times at a place called Bethel, which means house of God. Um, and, and again, we, we don't have time to dig into all the passages, but you can go to Abraham, you can go to Isaac, Jacob, Israel, all these things, and see a lot of these same things popping up in the narrative. They're building altars. They're at Bethel doing things with God in the house of God. They're, they're pitching their tents and going certain directions and doing certain things, called to be these ambassadors for God. Um, think of the covenant with Abraham itself. What was the ultimate goal of God choosing Abraham to be in fellowship with? He promises him what things in the covenant that he makes with Abraham? Land, descendants, and blessing. And ultimately, these play out in what way? Um, ultimately, who is Abraham a blessing to? It's all of the nations, all of the world, right? Um, so it's, it's always this point, again, of this idea of God's presence coming through a few, but always being about all of, all of creation. God's presence fills everything. So we start to see this, this play out, too. You think about by the time we get to Israel, and you have these patriarchs traveling to the promised land, being promised these things, setting up their tents in different places, building altars to God. By the time Israel actually makes it to the promised land, after all these patriarchs have gotten there and then had to go down to, to Egypt, but then they're back, they're establishing their presence in the promised land, you essentially have these shrines that end up getting set up all over the promised land, these altars, little tabernacle places that are scattered all over the promised land as like little inklings, little, little tiny signposts of 
what God is wanting to do. Is God wanting really, is God's ultimate goal to give one people group one little space of land by a pretty ocean? It's much bigger than that, right? It's to give all nations his presence and this promised land will ultimately be all of creation. So the goal of these commissions, the goal of the covenants, the goal of these relationships he's establishing, the reason he's giving them works and tasks to do and obey are ultimately to bless all the nations of the earth. Any questions? Is this making any sense? Are you guys seeing this play, play out? Is it interesting at all or am I totally nerd? Totally a nerd. It's okay to say the second, but okay. All right, let's move on. I didn't hear what you said. I just said okay. Both. I will accept that. Both and. You, I, you know I like both ands. All right. So next, let's talk about Israel. So Israel's wilderness tabernacle, then ultimately this temple that's established in Jerusalem, is a reestablishment of what we've already seen. It's not this like, oh, here's a good idea. God's going to do something different now, and we're just going to, you know, there's all these pagan nations around us. They have stuff they do to their gods. Israel, let's, let's create one for you that's a little bit different. You know, and you can say, well, this one's to the one and only true God. It's, it's not that. It's a reestablishment and a heightening of what we've already seen from the very beginning, what God's intent is here. So this is the first time we really see the word temple used. We have like this idea of sanctuary and presence and, and garden. Um, now we have the idea of tabernacle moving into this temple where God dwells with his people that he has chosen. Um, but like I said, uh, these high points, um, or this high point of the temple and the nation of Israel is reflecting already established realities that were, that were there since Eden. Um, Psalm 78. Just one little thing I want to show you in the course of this. Just little touch points along the way. Interesting. Psalm 78 and verses uh, or 68, 69, 70. Psalmist speaking. Uh, he, the psalmist. This psalm is really just like a rehearsal of God's working in history and in His people. And he just quickly says he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. And he moves on. This is just one tiny little picture, one verse that there are many others too that speak of God's sanctuarying. Sanctuarying? Did I just coin a word? God being with his people, fellowshipping with them through the temple, that it is an example and picture and image of creation. That it is like the heavens, that it is like the earth, which he's founded forever. We go to Hebrews, and what do we see? Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, telling us about the temple, that it was a model of the true and heavenly temple, right? So it's this image of something. Um, but we see this spoken of that the temple was for reflection of the fact that God made his creation to be where his presence is manifested, where he fellowships with his people. And um, so we spoke to this a little bit, but let me just mention a couple other aspects um, 
to this about what the temple looked like. We've probably all seen, um, maybe we saw it in flannel graph when we were kids. Maybe we've seen it in a Bible atlas or in the back of our Bible, um, pictures of maybe Solomon's temple or the, the second temple after their exile, right? And so we see this. And so we often just see like the big piece of it, right? And we see maybe some things sitting in the courtyard, things like that. And, you know, they're, they, they do what they're intended for. And yet what they don't really show just the detail and purpose of, of what the things were in the temple itself. We talked about the, the lampstands a few minutes ago, what these lampstands actually looked like. Um, you had these brazen bowls out in the holy place, again, this middle area that is reflecting, I'm going to say, this, this garden. And so you had one main one, and then you had other little ones that priests would wash in and do some ritual stuff in. But the, the big one held, I forget how many gallons that they think it was that it held, but it was massive. Like it was, it was really, really high, and it was like a swimming pool elevated in the air. Like it was supposed to represent, it wasn't just like, hey, let's, let's have a bird fountain in the middle here, because that would be nice, right? That's not it at all. Like it is, it is pointing to oceans. Like this is, this is a picture of God's creation and these seas. And so you walk through these different parts of the temple and you see these things that speak volumes. The idea of um, the heavenlies and all the lamps and lights that were in this this middle area when you would go into it at night, like you would walk in and, um, and see, all, see all these things. Um, the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies, you know, we, we know about the curtain because when Jesus, um, you know, was crucified, it's ripped from top to bottom, you know, but, you know, we know those things. We know it was big. We know it was thick. We might know that some of those things, but what it actually looked like. Um, Josephus and others, and even some descriptions in um, the uh, how to make Solomon's temple. Um, this curtain was like four or five inches thick, and it was it was huge, right? It, it went from the top of uh, the Holy of Holies um, down to the ground to cover that whole area. And based on the descriptions, this thing had was made out of silk and and other threads that were purple, orange, scarlet, all these blue, like a celestial blue color that were all woven together. There were actual pictures of birds and stuff that were woven into this. So if you're standing back and looking at this massive curtain of blues and purples and oranges and reds and these birds and things, you're seeing a giant picture of the sky and of like this beautiful sunset or something, right? So it's not just like the the red drapes at the theater or at your kid's elementary school, you know, to cover the stage, right? It's, it's something that's massively ornate and beautiful, and you see it, and you're not wondering, wonder, wonder why they put the birds on there. Like, wh- wonder, wonder why they did that. They run out of that one color, so they started using the next color, like my grandmother used to do when she knitted me gloves. Um, that's, that's not the case. There is intention to everything that's happening in the temple, um, and so you're seeing this over and over again. We could talk for like 20 minutes just about it, but um, just even go on the internet and, and Google some of this stuff. There's some really interesting articles that are written uh, about this. All this to say, the temple wasn't just this, let's build a pretty building, let's try to make it look as ritzy as possible. There was intent to everything that was in there. And uh, 
it spoke to the fact that it was mimicking paradise. It was mimicking garden sanctuary. It was mimicking how God dwelt with his people and how he intended things to be and how he was promising that they will once again be that way. So why have these aspects or these sections of the temple? Um, well, again, like we saw in Eden, let's say like the Holy of Holies, representing the invisible heavenly dimension of God's creation. He's dwelling there um, because of sin. There cannot be just this normal fellowship, this two-way interaction with just anybody and God. So it's representing this invisible heavenly dimension, the holy place, um, representing you know what's visible, the visible creation in the heavens, some of those you know pieces of furniture that I just described. Then you have the outer courtyard again, which was more common. There was still furniture in there, things that represented things. Um, but again, representing the idea of just the sea and earth where humans dwell or the area that is still yet to have God's presence fully manifested in it. Um, and you know, you look at, um, you know, even in Jesus's time, there are Gentiles that interact in the outer courts or things going on there. That's where Jesus turns the tables over. Um, people are in those outer courts buying animals to sacrifice as they uh, cleanse themselves to move into the holy place. Um, so that's taking place there. So it's not just this arbitrary, like, let's set up our temple to look like this. And, you know, it's, it's very, very intentional. So I'm saying this, Israel's temple was a little earthly model of God's temple in heaven and God's creation that would eventually cover the whole earth. Um, you guys ever been to a church or a part of a church that are like, hey, we're going to have a building, we're going to build an addition, or we're going to do something, and they put out the little model of what it's going to look like? Remember that? It was good, like, uh, 80s paraphernalia. I remember going to churches back then, and that was the thing. Like, oh, you got the little model, right? And so we know that's not at all what the church plans on building. That's not the end result, but it's a picture, an image of what is to come. And in the same way, the temple is acting as an image to what will ultimately be the case. Not that all we have to look forward to is like this massive, massive Solomon's temple, but that the imagery we see in the temple is what we look forward to. Um, additionally, just not the temple in Jerusalem or in the midst of Israel, but Israel themselves. Israel now is God's people functioning as priests and kings to all the nations, right? They've been given some of the same tasks and commissions, have they not? They were called to be a distinct people, and they were, we oftentimes think of them as very inward, right? Like they removed themselves from the world, they were separate. They were definitely that, you know, their practices, the law, called them to be very distinct and to remain clean and to um, be able to have fellowship with God in a way that he would create because of sin that the other nations didn't have. But that in of itself was supposed to be a witness and testimony to the nations around them, to call the other nations to their God. So Israel was on mission in their own sense, okay? Um, does that happen? Does Israel fulfill its function as a priest king to extend God's presence to all the nations and all of creation? No. They fail. So just like Adam, they failed. Just like Adam, they are 
sent out, right? So the temple is now functioning essentially as the garden. They are sent into exile away from the temple, apart from God's presence. So we see these same themes, these same, the same story woven through what God is unfolding. It's interesting that um, in several passages, uh, Genesis 13.10, Isaiah 51.3, Ezekiel 36.35, uh, the promised land, this, this land that Israel was holding on to so tightly and trying to, to uh, even continue to attain because had been promised to them, is described like Eden is described. It's described um, and even referred to in some cases as Eden or the garden. So you see that continuity there as well. And so we come to the exiles and we're reading the prophets. And when Israel is in exile, it's just this theme that just keeps getting hammered through the prophets. You know, God is judging. You did not fulfill your function as his people. You sinned, you rebelled, you did not guard and keep the promised land. All of these things we can see. And so there's judgment in these prophecies. And yet at the end of the day, there's also promises and hope that are given that one day things would be reestablished and not just reestablished in the way that things had been before, but heightened again. It would be better so that what you had now, Israel, or what you, what you wish that you could go back to that you had before exile, that's going to be, you know, that's, that's small apples compared to what's coming. So this, this promise of new covenant, of um, God's presence being over the whole world, that it would finally truly come to be, that there would be no more of this, um, these, these second Adams, little a, that kept on failing just like Adam. So by the time we get to, to this era of redemptive history, we're starting to see that God is saying, okay, you've gotten the picture. I've shown it multiple ways. I am now ready to begin to fulfill my ultimate plan. And so we see Christ come. So Christ is the true temple to which all earlier temples were pointing. So Jesus, of course, is the epitome of God's presence on earth right? Um, John 1.14, he comes in the flesh. He's God incarnate. He's here. John says he comes and dwells with us, that word there, tabernacling himself with us, a beautiful picture. Again, speaking in terms that, of course, God's people Israel can understand, you know, like their whole lives are wrapped around this temple system and this God dwelling with them in this way, when they read that Jesus is God incarnate and he has come and tabernacled himself with his people, that's going to resonate with somebody that has spent their whole life doing the temple thing in a way that we probably can never understand. But that's, that's heavy stuff when you read that. Beautiful stuff. Of course, we see Jesus speaking himself throughout his, his ministry, declaring that forgiveness comes through him, right? 
Forgiveness is not going to be found in what the temple offers. This forgiveness is not going to be found in these sacrifices that these people are doing. We even see glimpses of this in the Old Testament right smack in the middle of the Mosaic law playing out. We read one of them this morning, Psalm 40. Um, the psalmist saying, I understand that it's more than just these sin sacrifices, these animal sacrifices, that these, the end of the day, are not what you desire. They're not ultimately what you're going for. They are pictures that are pointing to something. And Jesus comes and says, I am the fulfillment of those pictures. It is me. Forgiveness comes through me and me alone, not the sacrificial system. So he's starting to take over the functions of the temple, right? He's starting to say, I am the temple. Um, and essentially, he does that. Mark 12, 10, Luke 20 talks about him, he himself saying that he is the cornerstone of the temple. Um, John 2, look at John 2 real quick. This is a passage, again, that we all know. Um, but it's amazing. John 2, 18 these Jewish leaders are talking to him. He's just cleansed the temple. John's described this temple cleansing early in his gospel. The leaders say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's standing in the outer courts of the temple, right? The Jewish leaders are like, what in the world? This guy has lost it. How is that possible? You know, they're dumbfounded. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, you're going to raise it up in three days. And John's like, nope, he's talking about himself. He is the temple. And then, you know, even speaks to the fact that when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he had said this. It's like, ah, now we get it. Now we get it. So Jesus is calling himself the cornerstone of the temple. He unveils his true nature as the true temple to these Jewish leaders. And you, again, like just like I said with uh, the um, idea of Jesus tabernacling himself and the weight that that carries to a Jew, these Jewish leaders, they're hearing Jesus say this and they're not really getting it. Um, but this to the disciples, when it finally clicks for them, it doesn't click till after the resurrection, that's heavy stuff. That is like this, like, oh, okay, now, now we're... Now we're seeing it. Now we're getting it. And, and, you know, they're starting to connect the dots. So Jesus comes as the ultimate fulfillment of what the temple was always and only pointing to. The temple in itself was incomplete. Christ comes as the last, final, perfect Adam and is the culmination of both of these threads that we've been seeing. He is the temple. He is the dwelling place of God. He is God present with his people, with his creation, and he's also functioning as the Adam within that temple. So he's going and fulfilling everything that Adam and Noah, the patriarchs, the nation of Israel didn't do. Um, and the pictures of that are beautiful. Again, we don't have a lot of time for it, but just even to see um, the uh, picture that Matthew gives in his opening chapters when um, Christ goes into the wilderness and he's taken through the same 40 days of being in the wilderness, Israel in the wilderness, 40 years, and being tempted to complain, being tempted to want to be things, and, and Christ is guarding 
the temple, so to speak. He's combating the serpent and saying, no, get out of here. And he's, he's answering him with, with the revelation of God, with the word of God. Beautiful pictures that scripture lays out of, of what's happening here. So it starts to unfold. The, the resurrection of Christ, of course, changes everything. And I want to be careful how I say that because there is continuity, all right? So it's not changing everything in the sense that, boom, the story we've been talking about ends. The story continues to unfold, but all of a sudden it changes everything in the sense that it just, it just blows it open, all right? These glimpses, these images, these, these things that we're seeing and we're wanting and we can't quite grasp um, because there's failure over and over again of these little atoms. Jesus just bursts it open with his life, with his resurrection, and these things begin to unfold in this new covenant that's been established with his body. So now, Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the final and perfect Adam. We are now found in Jesus. So Christ's followers are now temples in the unfolding of the new creation. It has begun. We've got the age that's passing away and the age that is to come have been overlapped in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the coming of his spirit. You hear people sometimes talk about it as like the already and the not yet. We have this unfolding that has begun and will culminate in Christ ultimately doing the work to make everything, to make everything new. And yet in the midst of that, we are found united to Christ. And in so being united to him are made temples ourselves and made ambassadors, little atoms, so to speak. So when we're found in Christ, we become part of Jesus, the temple that he is. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul mentions two times here that we are the temple. In one of the passages, he's speaking corporately. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy. You are that temple. Then he says again in chapter 6, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So as he's going through talking to this fledgling, messed up church and teaching them, he is... <laughs> addressing the problems and the issues, but he's addressing them by telling them the story. He's addressing them by telling them who they are. They have been made the temple of the living God. And so, as individuals, keep yourselves holy. Don't defile yourselves. As the church, as God's people, you are the temple of God. Understand that and let it play out. Second Corinthians, Paul keeps hammering this theme. 2 Corinthians um, 6, I think. Um, yes, sorry. 2 Corinthians 6. Same thing that's happening in 1 Corinthians. He's addressing an issue. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? 
Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And then you see the rest of verse 16, verse 17, verse 18. Your Bible probably indents and has quotation marks. And it's all these verses that we don't understand what's happening. Like, Paul, what? I don't have a clue what you're talking about, Paul. And so we just kind of skip down past the indented parts till he's talking normally again, right? What are those passages that he's quoting there? Why is he quoting them? He's, tr- he's, he's dealing with like this everyday situation in the church. And he says what he's already said. You're the temple of the living God. And then says all this stuff. What, why is it there? What, what's, what's he saying? Any ideas? Well, they're Old Testament citations, all right? I'll give you that. You probably know that. Um, and they're a mix from Leviticus, the Law of Moses, some stuff from Ezekiel, stuff from Isaiah, all mixed in here, and yet not in a way that we can't easily understand where it's coming from. Um, again, understand people um, that had any background um, in Judaism knew their Old Testaments very, very well. Paul knew his Old Testament very, very well. And he saw the story, as we're looking at tonight, continuing on so that he oftentimes quoted these Old Testament passages showing that they were playing out in the very lives of believers in the New Covenant. So he starts speaking and citing these Old Testament passages that are speaking of this promised temple that will come in the latter days. He's using passages, like I said, way back from Leviticus through Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these passages that are speaking again, like, Israel, you failed. You're being judged. You're in exile. But I am a merciful and gracious God, and ultimately, I will restore, I will renew, you will be present with me, I will be your God. All these things are being laid out in the Old Testament, and Paul grabs a whole bunch of them, paraphrases them, and says, here's proof for me saying you're the temple of the living God. He's saying, listen, guys, I'm not just trying to give you an illustration or like this, like, hoorah, motivational speech, like, get up and try really hard. You know, don't, don't be sinning anymore. So just remember, you're kind of like, you're kind of like the temple, so you should act like it. Now, he is saying that they are the temple. As much as the temple in Solomon's day was the temple, as much as Eden and the garden were the sanctuary of God, the temple of God, At this point in time, at this point in God's story, the people of God, anybody that is in Christ, is the temple of the living God. And he proves his point by saying, look, see all these things that you know that that were spoken of? It's coming true right now in you. Yeah, that's going to be a little surprising, especially to people that had gotten so caught up in this one-for-one ratio of reality um, in the sense that like, at this point in time, they're probably, they've got this like first century Thomas Kincaid picture in their head of what this temple is going to look like someday and they can't wait for it because it's going to be more fabulous than any other of the temples around them that are set up to gods that don't exist. They're thinking this way and, and God's saying, no, 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 like those were pictures, those were types, those were things that were pointing to 
what is real, what is literal, and, and it's more beautiful than you can imagine. But it comes with responsibility. It comes with the same kinds of commissions that Adam has, that Christ fulfilled. We carry them on um, in the sense that, we're, again, we're in Christ, we're his followers. We are called as the temples, as we've seen in 1 Corinthians, to guard, to protect, to be holy, because we are set apart, to be different, to be distinct. We're called to be ambassadors. The same things that Christ fulfilled, um, we are called to continue in this overlap of the ages. Lots of places we could go. 2 Corinthians 5 is a great one. We're made ministers of reconciliation. So again, these pictures of the temple. God is dwelling, holy of holies, summed up in Jesus. His people now, again in the garden, so to speak, are called to cultivate this truth, the reality of Jesus present in his spirit. The spirit is in us. There's fellowship taking place. And yet, does it end there? Are we called to be garden maintainers? Mm -mm. We're called to be cultivators, expanders, being in the same way that the lampstands were or the altars among the promised land as little shrines, as little like inklings and outposts of God's presence. We, the church, are, Stacy, I think even said it a week or two ago, outposts of, of the kingdom, of what's taking place. We are called to be expanders of that because we are in Christ and only because we are in Christ. Um, and so it takes place through his power alone. And yet we're called to do it as his temple. So we're set apart, we're holy, we're distinct, and yet we're not removed from our surroundings. We're not called to just keep our tidy little corner of our own lives holy, but we're called in doing that and in reflecting Jesus, the true temple, to be out in the world, taking the rest of what is good, but distorted now, and making it new again by lots of things, but of course, first and primarily through seeing God's spirit and his presence move and expand into other lives and other people. And so the outposts grow and expand his kingdom grows and expands. His church grows and expands. Um, and then, of course, it's culminated. So this is hard. We, we could get into a lot of stuff here. I know um, different people would look at this and say, well, that's all well and good. It's a great example, but, you know, it's, it can't be the actual fulfillment. You know, like we're still, we're still looking at Ezekiel and seeing this description of a temple that looks pretty physical and architectural, so when's that going to happen and all these things? We could talk about that, and if you want to ask questions about that in a minute, we can. But I am saying that in passages like this, I think 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, it's an awesome one. It says, no, I'm not using an illustration. This is literal fulfillment. It is still literal, even though it's not a one-for-one correspondence with reality. This is based, again, on the beginning of the book. 2 Corinthians 1, 
when Paul makes this statement that's so easy to pass when you're reading his opening chapter, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And it's on this basis that he plays out these next several chapters. All the promises of God find their yes, their fulfillment, their completion in Jesus. And he continues, we're now ministers of the new covenant. We're ministers of reconciliation. We're lights of the gospel. We are the temple of the living God. And then he sums it all up, chapter 7, 1. Since, therefore, based on all of this, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body, spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Some other passages that we um, can go to and, and know pretty well, Ephesians 2. Um, this picture, again, using very architectural terms, um, is talking about Jesus and his church. Those of us that were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We're no longer strangers and aliens. We're fellow citizens and saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, as Jesus said himself um, in his ministry, Paul reiterates here, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's awesome. Like He's like describing this building that's being built. Like you're picturing this, oh yeah, cornerstone, foundations, you know, pillar, and, and other places he talks about like the pillar and ground of truth and these images of like real solid, you know, nuts and bolts, concrete, rock, stone, whatever they did back then, stuff. And yet it's imagery for a reality that is found in the personal work of Jesus and the reality of his people being the church. Peter, 1 Peter, he is a madman for using pictures of these promises in the Old Testament. <clears throat> 1 Peter 2, again, Peter now is quoting Old Testament passages. Behold, I lay in, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Speaking again of Jesus using physical imagery. Stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone. He talks about us being living stones because Christ is a living stone. That's back. Um, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, who is rejected by men, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see these same terms and these same pictures playing themselves out uh, right into our very own lives. We are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. We're living stones. He uses, of course, the pictures of um, verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All these pictures and imageries of uh, what God called his people Israel. We are now 
functioning that way as his priesthood, holy nation, people. Again, it's God's plan, his story, playing itself out. And so we have seen this picture and this goal through all of this coming to realization again as we enter back to Revelation 21 and 22. Hopefully now having a little bit fuller understanding of why John is seeing some of these things the way he is, of why he's using some of these terms and this terminology. Again, don't picture John like having this vision and he's like in this out-of-body experience like uh, the Christmas story with the ghost of Christmas past or something, right? Like he's floating out there and he's going to... It's apocalyptic literature. He's having visions and yet it's not this out-of-body like I'm just going to scroll something here and I don't have a clue what I'm talking about, but whoa, wow, look what the Spirit made me do. Like, this guy is using Scripture to describe what he's seeing. He's using imagery to describe what it is he's being shown. And so we can't just read this, these passages as removed from everything before it. They are full of pictures and images to the types that came before So the new heaven and new earth are the realization of all that has been prophesied and seen in types and shadows. The promises come to full light and total fulfillment because of the work of Christ as the temple and the mission of his people as the temple. Here in the new Jerusalem, God's presence finally and once and for all fills all of creation as he always intended. You see now why we can say that John sees the new heaven and new earth and then describes the city that is in itself this garden-like temple sanctuary where God is present and say that it is the new heaven and new earth because that's God's plan, that his presence and the sanctuary and the temple and the holy of holies would ultimately be over the whole world. That There would not for all of time and eternity be compartments or stages into the presence of God. That in the end, everything is the holy of holies. That the veil is gone. The curtain between those things is gone. Picture again of this symmetry, this cube. The city is a cube. It's filled with gold. Guys, it's not there to tell us to be excited that we'll be able to walk on streets that are made out of gold for eternity. All right? That's not the reason John is seeing this. We're like, woohoo! Someday, I mean, those potholes on 264 drive me crazy, but someday I'm going to drive on a gold street. That's not, that's not what the point is. That's not why it is there. John is using this to say, guys, in the end, earth, creation, everything will be made new, everything will be restored, and it will be all of it the dwelling place of God. It will be the holy of holies. And you will exist in it. You will live in it. You will, you will worship your maker in it. It's, it's amazing. Um, and so we see these things coming to fruition. <clears throat> we see too, as we again read other aspects here, um, on into the latter part of chapter 22 as well, that all of God's people from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation, as we know, they've all become high priests. Remember when God asks of Israel to write his word 
on their hearts and to like basically put it, put it on their foreheads. And this imagery again of like having God's revelation, having God's word surround you in the everyday. It's come to fruition. It's, it's filled out as much as it can be filled out now. Everybody is a high priest. God's name itself is written on the foreheads of his people. His people don't just stand one time a year now in God's presence in the Holy of Holies, but they stand in his presence moment by moment, continually for all of eternity. So everything they do, however they function, they're doing so as perfectly set apart people, redeemed, restored to the uttermost, and can do anything in a way that honors and glorifies and worships God. All right, I'm going to stop there with that. I think you get the idea. I hope you get the idea. Has that been helpful at all? Has it been interesting at all? Okay, good. Not for my sake, but for your sake and maybe seeing some things that you haven't seen before and playing this thing out. Some application, some time to ask questions. Um, We've hit on these a little bit, but let me just say these couple things really quickly, and then if you have any questions, we'll do that. If not, maybe I'll go back to these some more uh, intently. But we're understanding ourselves as the people of God, as temples united to Jesus. We're now functioning. Of course, Jesus is the last Adam, right? He, he's, he's, it's done. Like There's not any more work to do in the sense of trying to get fellowship or reinstate or restore fellowship with God. But we are functioning as ambassadors and all these things we looked at already. Um, I think Paul says in Philippians, we're like, we're to shine as lights. We're like to be lampstands in the world around us. Um, and so in the same way, maybe to a lesser extent, maybe, maybe to a more full extent, because we're in Jesus, we keep and guard um, we cultivate, we do these things um, in the same types of ways that Adam was called to, to remember God's word, to keep it, to use it in life, um, to commune with God. So I, I don't want to like say, all right, all of that cool, cool stuff, and the application is read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. I'm not saying that, but I kind of am in the sense that these traditional spiritual disciplines that we can so easily distort. And it's sad how easily we distort them and use them for our own glory and our own self-righteousness. Or we, we don't use them to their fullness and we, you know, like, I got my chapter in for today. I feel good about myself. But at the same time, being familiar with and full, filled with the word of God so that we can function properly so that we can be disciples that in turn make other disciples um, based on the word and the story of God, believing what is true. So that, so to speak, when the serpent comes in uh, to the sanctuary, we're able to say, no, get, get behind me. I'm not listening. What you're offering me is, is worthless. It's, it's the temptation to accept all these lesser things. And yet, with the word of God and belief in the word of God, we can say no to it consistently. Of course, because the power of the Spirit is in us too. 
Um, I said this earlier, but again, the resurrection changes everything. If we understand the fact that God is restoring people to himself, and we focused a little bit more on that tonight and the understanding of like Jesus is the temple, the church is people are the temple, that's all happening because of the resurrection, because Jesus is the true temple, that in and of itself changes everything. But when you see the fact that it ultimately is coming to a restored and renewed heaven and earth, that all things are going to be made new, it, it really changes everything. So that we don't just stop with the read your Bible, pray every day. We don't just stop with a proclamation of the gospel, but demonstrating what the gospel does in our hearts and, and changing us into distinct temples. It, here, here we are in the outer courts, so to speak, that are full of sin, and we are, in and of ourselves, this holy, the holy place, so to speak, not just our words and our proclamation of the truth stand out and are part of the kingdom, but our demonstration of who we are as temples stand out as part of the kingdom. Um, again, we can play that out a long ways, but every aspect of our lives should be seen with a kingdom mentality. It changes everything. And I hope, I hope this impacts our understanding of heaven, too. Um, I, I feel, and maybe it's just me sometimes with my own dumbness or lack of understanding in growing up, I had such a truncated view of what heaven, I, I feel I had such a truncated view of what heaven is portrayed as in Scripture that was, you know, just a very populist understanding of heaven. Um, and we often just get this idea of heaven being this thing that's so far removed from reality, so far removed from every anything earthy. It's honestly like the descriptions that we hear a lot of times, the things that we see in stained glass windows and, you know, 500-year-old cathedrals and such. It's like, really? That's eternity? Like, I actually like my job's nothing special, but I think I actually like my job a little bit more than what that stained glass window says eternity is going to be like. You know, like, it becomes this ethereal otherness that's so far removed from everything here. And that is because of a lot of things. We, we are dualists in the sense, um, remember when we talk about Gnosticism with First John and other things where that belief was starting to taint even the early church where Anything that's physical and material or earthy is bad. And anything that's like the spiritual or out there, it's not physical. That's what we're trying to attain to, and that's good. And so our, we have to remove ourselves out of the earthy and get to something else. That was, that was a big deal in the first couple centuries of church history, and it has ramifications today. Um, but even before that with Plato and guys, guys like that, all the way back to Greek days, the same idea. It was prevalent. And, and we experience it today, and we see it in our, a lot of our understandings of heaven as this otherness that's not really how Scripture talks about it, as we've seen tonight. We're not going to be going out there, up there somewhere when we die, floating somewhere that we've never seen, and who knows, like, where is it? Like, how high up did Jesus go before he made it to heaven? And now, like, we're going to be up there too, and like, no, it's, heaven is earth. It's a restored and renewed earth where God is. 
it's not about us becoming less human, as if the whole point of salvation is to like, whew, finally get rid of this crappy body that we have and everything about it and get away from the evil earth. It's about restoring true humanity so that we can be humans like we were always meant to be um, in a world that was intended to be. Um, that changes things a little bit, right, if we play that out. No longer am I picturing myself, um, you know, eating tea and crumpets for all of eternity or bowing at the throne with all these crazy-headed creatures that we see in Revelation, like perpetually, perpetually, perpetually. But those are speaking to the fact that in a world where we are high priests and where God dwells and the whole thing is the holy of holies and we are made fully human, resurrected people, freed from sin, we can function as humans uh, and, and do it all to the glory of God, all to the complete worship of God. Yes, there's discontinuity. You know, I'm not saying um, that there will still be Idaho in the new heaven and earth or, you know, like... <laughs> Sorry, who's from Idaho? <laughs> um, but, but what I am saying is there will be things to do in heaven. It won't be this existence where we just kind of just sit and do the same. Like, we'll be human. We will be meant and able to do all the things that God created us to do. Like, all of a sudden, that's like, okay, actually, I want to be there now. And Jesus will be there. And that's awesome. Um, so that, that, changes, that changes everything. I could talk about that, just that, for a long time. Um, but hopefully that just is, if nothing else, a seed in your mind um, to think about. Any questions on any of that or anything else that's popped up in your mind through this, this time that um, you're thinking, wondering? Yes? No, that's a good question, and that's a, that's a road in which you can fall into ditches pretty quickly and easily, I think. Um, when we see this playing out, um, and in my mind, as I picture this theme that we've traced, I see like a crescendo in music. You know, it's like starts out really little and then it gets bigger and bigger and more full and more full. Um, and some maybe like when you're looking at it that way and you're seeing this, this play out, you can see it wrongly in that you're like, you're like, okay, Christ is the temple. Now we're the temple. We have a function and a job to do. And then we have culmination, as if it just kind of just like we're doing our job right and it just kind of bleeds into the new heaven and new earth. Um, I think we need to remember, and it's foundational to this, is that only God will fully establish his kingdom. It's, it's God. It's, it's not us. We are not going to establish the kingdom or bring the kingdom in. I think that's that's very helpful and crucial to remember that the end of the day, this is God's doing, um, and we are called into that story. But between this age, in this overlap of the ages, and the age to come in all its fullness is a work of God, and not just us, like, making everything finally turn good so that, oh, it's, it's happened. 
Um, so, you know, you've, you probably hear of, um, you know, theological systems too, like post-millennialism, things like that, that sees, sees the church um, doing things in this world so that it's basically overcoming evil slowly and surely so that you just kind of, we reach this golden era and it's utopia and it's like, all right, we did our job. It's here. Um, I... I um, sympathize with certain aspects to that system. Um, and yet at the end of the day, I think one of the main pieces that are missing there is that God does the movement from this age into the culmination. Um, so then practically, how does that play out? Um, it shouldn't at all cause us to be, um, you know, like, all right, well, God's going to do it. I'll sit back and, and watch. Um, that's the other ditch, of course, to fall into. Um, he has pulled us into the outworking of this. And, and again, I think just seeing the imagery along the way of like what Adam was called to do, what all these things are doing, what Jesus did, helps understand our little piece in that. That we are, I have no problem saying that we are outposts of the kingdom, that the kingdom has come and has started and is playing itself out, maybe not in like this like uh, external um, like for all the world to see kind of way, but as we saw in the parables in Mark, it's happening in a very unexpected, um, underlying type way. Like it's, it's, it's happening even when we say, where is it? I don't see the kingdom. It's easy to turn on the news right now and say that. Like, is this really true? Like, I don't see any evidence of God ruling and reigning. Um, and yet it's happening. Um, Martin Luther talks about the theology of the cross, which um, I find hugely helpful with this in the sense that just as the way in which Christ came and had victory over Satan, sin, and death was a very unexpected, scandalous, as we've looked at in Mark, way. Like, really? He conquers Satan, sin, and death by dying on a cross? Like, no. How, you know, it's this, like, this paradox that God does things in very to us, mundane, underhanded, not underhanded, that's a wrong term to use, but uh, mundane type, unexpected ways. So his, his kingdom is playing out in very real ways. It's not necessarily seen on the news, but seen in, in his temple and his people. Um, and so that is playing out. I believe that, you know, his church will not fail, that Satan is not allowed in this time period to deceive so much so that the church fails. It will do what it is meant to do, but God will bring in the culmination of his kingdom. Does that, I, I feel like in some ways I didn't even answer that at all, but does that help? Okay. Yeah, that starts to, right, right, that starts to play into, that's kind of the realm of um, like a two kingdoms understanding and like um you might hear sometimes people talk about like neo-Calvinism or Kuyperianism, Kuip like Abraham Kuyper, Dutch guy, 100 years ago. Um, so yeah, that's like a really touchy situation or touchy area too, where I probably find like one of my feet in both of those, like I'm straddling <laughs> in the sense that, um, yes, we have distinct callings as the church, as, as this temple in Jesus to do. Um, and yet because all of creation will be renewed, that it doesn't remove us as the church from 
being in the world doing things that reflect what God's kingdom will ultimately look like. So it doesn't remove us as Christians from the responsibility to be believers in our work, to actually go to our work and maybe not even just like, I did what I needed to do, but maybe dig into whatever our field is and say, how can I show what the kingdom of God is like and how I work or how I fix something in, in my field of work or whatever it might be. I think um, in that sense, I'm okay with that and saying like, yeah, I'm a part of the church, I'm a Christian or even like a group of us that has the same field of work or something like that. Like, let's go in and let's go. Let's say like, I, we're gonna show you the way it's meant to be in some of the things that we we try to do in, in the way Christians might tackle things in politics and stuff. I don't have a problem with Christians going and doing those things, understanding that it's not going to bring in the kingdom and it's never gonna be completely good. It's always gonna be distorted. But um, again, I don't think that's a call for us just to sit and wait. Um, so again, I hope that answers your question. And I have no problem saying like, get into the culture, go do things. But that's not a one-for-one -one correspondence to what will ultimately take place through the work of God to bring in his kingdom. Hope that, hope that helped. All right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's the, one of those things where you can fall into ditches on either side pretty quickly with that. Um, and you've got to have some foundational truths as you run out into it um, to keep yourself anchored, I think, in a biblical way. Agreed. All right, anything else? 704. Maybe sometime we can have a, uh, a follow-up session where we just start to play this out and some of these practical things, because it, 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 you can run so many directions with this and play it out. But I hope this maybe equips you in such a way that you have some tools now and some way of looking at things so that even if it's just you reading scripture and you're starting to see these pictures in scripture, that it, it pulls you back to this big story of what God's, what God's communicating in his word. Um, I hope that it helps you as you get into some of the daily aspects of life and and some of your personal callings and your responsibilities as husbands and wives or mothers and fathers or, you know, as employees, whatever it might be, that you start to say, how does the, the reality that's truer than any of those things I just mentioned, as important as any of those things are, how does the reality that I'm in Christ and the temple of the living God, that's, that's, that's more important than any of those, how does that impact those things? Because it should. should. It, th this shouldn't just be about us, like, learning some cool facts or a better way to like communicate or see scripture, and then great, we go home, but it should call us to something. It should result in obedience. It should result in thinking about our identity further and being um, his disciples maybe in the coming weeks in ways that we haven't seen or thought of or been um, in the past. So I encourage you to continue to play this out and not just um, tuck it away as, as some more facts that you got. All right. Dave, would you close us in prayer?